What if we just shake it up and we just start this podcast with the opening? Like no pre-banter, no charming, <sighs> friendly witticisms, just <laughs> all business. <laughs> all business all the time. <laughs> no laughs, uh, no goofs, gaffs, or laughs. No. Nothing is humorous. Oh, right. I'm sorry. You're right. Um, hello, colleague. I am appreciative of you taking the time to meet with me today. Oh, my God. No, no, no. Edit, undo. Edit, undo. <laughs> I couldn't even last an entire sentence. <laughs> I can go real business on you. And, and no one wants that. You do have um, an uncanny ability uh, <laughs> to what it, you know how in dystopian films and whatnot, it's always like everything is a little grayer and everyone has this like mask of capitalism on and they're ha having their organs harvested by the mm -hmm. government or whatever like you would be so good and i mean this as a compliment as playing the terrifying villain that like seems so nice they want the best for you but they're just chilling underneath it all like ah that is such a compliment. Oh my god, thank you. I I, w I always wondered what kind of villain I would be. <laughs> I feel like I feel like if you were a villain, you'd be the one that's like, I just, I just want the best for you. And then you know you have the eerie smile. Mm -hmm. I don't love the capitalist part, but like I'm with it for that energy. Mm, okay, okay, okay. So you could be part of an evil spy ring. I'll take that. <laughs> it, it doesn't translate as well. I do get that it's got to be like kind of an, an overlord, like a capitalist overlord. I'm supporting you. What I, you know, I'm being so generous to you thing. Right, right. Honestly, there just needs to be pencil skirts and clipboards. Like that's part of the, the mm. vibe. <laughs> I have so many of those. So I think we're set. Just a closet full of clipboard strings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 No goof scaps or laughs. Hi, I'm Rowan Hall. <laughs> and I'm Tracy Harrison. And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. And if you would like to support our podcast, a super fast and free thing you can do is tell your friends and family about our show. Or you can just tell a stranger in the airport, like I did. Really, just tell anyone who'll listen. Or you can support Willing and Fable by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash willingandfable. And do not forget to check out our new merch at willingandfable.com because we have all these amazing new designs by Jamie Harrison. Or you can sit in a gas station parking lot at 2 a.m. in order to stare out at the world through the faintly greenish glow of the streetlights and ponder your place in the universe. But no matter what, we're happy to have you here. And hey, guess what? It's the holiday season. You're doing your shopping. You should check out Greenleaf Geek, the longtime sponsor of our podcast. If you have any nerds in your life, she's got what you need to make them have a really happy holiday season. Mm. So if you want to support her, you can check her out at Greenleaf Geek on Instagram and Twitter. And when you decide to buy all your friends and family gifts, you can use our code Fable for 10% off your order. That's F-A-B-L-E for 10% off your order at greenleafgeek.com. Some restrictions apply. 
here's my favorite thing, and I'm going to need you all to do this. Like, we say go shopping for the nerd in your life because Greenleaf Geek is so fun and accessible, but you know what? You're a nerd, so go shopping for the non-nerd in your life. (laughs) Convert them to our tabletop (laughs) RPG family. Be like, here's some dice. You don't know what to do with them. If you want to know what to do with them, you have to hang out with me. There you go. Right there. You have a play date, an adult play date. I love the assumption that just because you listen to this podcast, you're automatically a nerd. Oh, gods above, Tracy. Do you think that anyone who listens to us talking is not a nerd in one way or another? This is a history, mystery, and mythology (laughs) podcast. Like, there are people who happily sit around listening to, like, I don't know, sports ball. And, like, they're doing that whole thing. I don't know. Isn't that – I feel like it's pretty cool. But those people aren't coming here, probably. I don't know. Oh, my God. What if we have people – I think we do. Who like sports and understand sports listening to us. They walk among us. Rowan, it's inside the house. Our (laughs) editor likes sports. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Really quick, just in case anyone does like sports so that you know that we're supportive of your interests, our – podcast editor we know for a fact does like sports ball because sometimes he tries to talk about sports games with us and no we smile we nod politely yeah for sure (laughs) (laughs) and i think probably i end up like talking loudly back to him like you know that horrible thing people do when they don't understand the language so they just raise their voice i'm like asking (laughs) questions about whatever football or something but like loudly (laughs) (laughs) oh no (laughs) oh it's a brilliant move and i love that (laughs) oh okay tracy let's shy away from the the nether realms of the sporty spice world um Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well i'd love to get into the sporty spice world i think that's a fun place to be who was your spice girl of choice because i feel like we were we that was not exactly our time, but I do remember being told by older children like pick your Spice Girl. <laughs> I always liked them as a group. I liked the music because I had older sisters who really who would play it all the time. Right? Yeah. I think the only one I could really pick out was Posh Spice. Oh my god, she was such a badass. Yeah. I. Yeah, I got my Spice Girl education, honestly, probably from your older sisters also. I was all about Ginger Spice because my mom also had red curly hair at the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, and also she was the only Spice Girl that had a spice name. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it should have been either All Spice or No Spice. All Spice. The band is just called All Spice. <laughs> Oh my gosh, we're losing our minds. Okay, all right. So we're not talking about the Spice Girls. (laughs) Today we're talking about Inanna, the ancient Mesopotamian goddess of love, beauty, sex, war, justice, and political power. She's all the Spice Girls rolled into one. She is all spice. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so originally our leading lady was worshipped in Sumer under the name Inanna, and later was worshipped by the Akkadians. Babylonians and Assyrians under the name Ishtar, which is what I knew more than I knew Inanna. I don't know about you. Interesting. Okay. Had you heard Inanna before you'd heard Ishtar? I, yeah. 
Yeah. Huh. I'm, I'm so flipped. I absolutely knew Ishtar and didn't know Inanna. I mean, full disclosure, I'm about to make a fool of myself. Like, I, I could have maybe, if I tried really hard, given you the sentence like, oh, Inanna, love and beauty and also maybe violence, and that's it for me. So you doing mm-hmm. this heavy hitter, I'm just sitting here at, like, eyes wide, Scooby-Doo style. You're going to love this. You're going to have so much fun. Okay. So let's talk about Sumer. Sumer was an ancient civilization from around 5000 BCE located in what is now Iraq with Inanna's cult center in Uruk at the Iana Temple. She was worshipped as early as 4000 to 3100 BCE and she eventually became one of the most widely venerated deities in the Sumerian pantheon. She's a she's a big powerful lady. So when you say cult, do you mean like large religion or do you mean like cult cult as we think of it today no not the way we think of it today more the way that you hear ancient greeks and romans Mm. talk about the cult of dionysus or something like that it's it's her worship center okay inanna appears in many ancient mesopotamian myths most notably inanna and the hulupu tree an early (laughs) we love it we love to see it that's an early creation myth from the epic of gilgamesh Inanna and the God of Wisdom, in which she brings knowledge and culture to the city of Uruk after receiving gifts from the God of Wisdom, Enki, when he's drunk. We'll get into that later. And the courtship of Inanna and Dumuzi, the tale of her marriage. But the best-known poem, The Descent of Inanna, is the one in which the Queen of Heaven journeys down to the underworld. Hmm. We will touch on all of those, don't you worry, Rowan. I have got the details for you. So is she the queen of heaven? She is considered a queen of the heavens. She is associated with the star Venus. And there's a lot of myths around the way that that star moves because it, you know, how it, it and sometimes it's called the evening star or the morning star because it mm-hmm. disappears behind the sun. There are some myths that scholars believe are attributing the connection to Inanna and the star Venus and her disappearance. So the myth of her going into the underworld and disappearing ties into the idea of the star Venus disappearing for a period of time. That's so interesting. I, you know how, how many myths around the world originate or have elements of the cosmos going on, charting the stars? And it's easy, I think, to forget for maybe folks like me who live in cities where there's so much light pollution, so the stars aren't as pervasive a presence. But when you Mm -hmm. go out into the wilderness in a place where you can actually see the stars it makes sense that it becomes a part of nearly every myth oh it makes so much sense if you've ever seen a very 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 clear night sky and i'm like yes those are the jewels of the gods and they are watching over us oh i instantly start howling at the moon it's all (laughs) over like no joke i need to see one star and Mm -hmm. i'm good to go (laughs) So Flint Johnson, professor at the University of Glasgow, states that some experts have seen Inanna's complicated but strong personality as a great feminist character from the past. Inanna was complex. She had many lovers and didn't hesitate to punish them for infidelity. She also did not shy away from war, especially when it had to do with her favorite city-state of Uruk. So let's talk about her story today. Before we jump into it, I want to say there's a content warning for sexual assault. Listener discretion is, as always, advised. So we're going to start with the origin and worship of Inanna. 
As with many ancient deities, it's difficult to track the origins of Inanna to a single time or place, but she has proven herself especially difficult to trace. A paper titled Inanna or Ishtar as a figure of controversy by H.L. Van Stifout theorizes that Inanna has posed a problem for many scholars of ancient Sumer due to the fact that her sphere of power contained more distinct and contradictory aspects than any other deity in the pantheon. She had love and war, Hmm. masculine and feminine. I contain multitudes. Mm -hmm. Two major theories regarding her origins have been proposed. The first explanation holds that Inanna is the result of a merge between several previously unrelated Sumerian deities with totally different domains. The second explanation holds that Inanna was originally a Semitic deity who entered the Sumerian pantheon after it was already fully structured, and who took on all the roles that had not yet been assigned to other deities. This second theory goes along with a myth we'll discuss a bit later in which Inanna complains that all the other gods have a domain, but she doesn't. Hmm. But my contradiction to that is... Love and war are kind of big domains. Right. Like, that's a big deal to not have it assigned, especially because not only are they big ideas, but they are life-defining ideas. Like, they're mm-hmm. they're structures in life that people seek out or try to avoid. Right. So you'd think that they'd want someone to interact with in that way? Okay. Right. She's complicated. That's just going to be the running theme. Everything about her is complicated. Uh, Like that song that's so popular right now, the I Am Woman song. Yes. The most famous stories about Inanna were written by a woman. Yes! Enheduanna. Oh, yes. Oh, we're going to do a whole other episode on Enheduanna because she is so cool. Yes! She's the earliest known poet, like whose name has been recorded. Full we know stop? her name. Yeah. That, that's what my research was saying. She was the earliest known poet whose name has been recorded. She was a high priestess of Inanna and the moon god Nana in the city of Ur. She was a princess, a priestess, and a poet. The three Ps, baby. The triple threat, baby. <laughs> she sounds so cool. So I'm sorry. Doubling back, there's Inanna and then the moon goddess Nana? Yeah, who's technically Inanna is the daughter of Nana. Oh. Okay. But I didn't really go into much detail of that because, again, it gets fuzzy and weird. So I, I didn't focus on I – fo- I focus more on the life of Inanna. That's okay. We have a triple threat in the house. We have Enheduanna, our triple threat. She's amazing. So she wrote three hymns in honor of Inanna, the names of which translate to The Great-Hearted Mistress, The Exaltation of Inanna, and Goddess of the Fearsome Powers. <sighs> I know. I know. This was such a fun episode to research. You're just going to get so excited <laughs> as we go on. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting concerned because already in the beginning I'm just going, yes, we love it. And I don't want to be just a, a screaming fangirl the whole way through. Oh, we're gonna. We're gonna. I mean, I just got so excited to share with you and had Duana because a real life woman who was the first poet whose name we know. Uh, that's cool. That's so exciting. Listen, I'm starting to feel like if I could live in any civilization, I would absolutely give ancient Sumerian civilization a try. They seem really cool. Yeah, and I was uh, watching a mini-doc about uh, 
the uh, Mycenaean Greeks, the mm -hmm. ancient Greeks to the ancient Greeks, for anyone yep. who's not super familiar. And I think I could have, I could have hashed it out back then. I think I could have done well. Like they, for a Bronze Age civilization, like they were pretty well off. Oh yeah. If I could carry a bunch of antibiotics with me and go to those places. Girl. <laughs> I mean, to be clear, you and I would just, we'd die off pretty quick because we're just not that hardy. <laughs> no, we, we're, we're fragile in our own time. <laughs> <laughs> but if I had to travel back in time to an early civilization <laughs> and die there for lack of antibiotics... <laughs> Okay, sorry, continue. Okay, 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 okay. Dr. Jeremy Black writes of Inanna, Violent and lusting after power, she stands beside her favorite kings as they fight. In a Sumerian poem, Inanna campaigns against Mount Ebe, her journey to Eridu to obtain the meh, or knowledge, and her descent to the underworld are both described as intended to extend her power. So, Inanna was the goddess of love and war. She's beautiful, sexual, strong, proud, and ambitious, and there are many, many stories that describe her life and her ascent to power. She was notably not a mother goddess, nor a goddess of marriage. She was invoked specifically for love. She was the goddess of sexuality only, and marriage was a separate domain. Ooh, that is cool. Isn't that cool? Listen, I have to calm down we've we've got a lot to cover and i can't geek out the whole time but boy howdy do i want to you're a simp <laughs> for the gods i'm a simp i'm a simp for the gods inanna was also worshipped as one of the sumerian war deities one of the hymns dedicated to her declares she stirs confusion and chaos against those who are disobedient to her speeding carnage and inciting the devastating flood clothed in terrifying radiance it is her game to speed conflict and battle, untiring, strapping on her sandals. Battle itself was occasionally referred to as the Dance of Inanna. Epithets related to lions in particular were meant to highlight this aspect of her character. How ridiculous or believable would it be to try to draw a straight line from Inanna to Athena? Oh, she's often described as Athena and Aphrodite. Merged into one. Okay. She she is both of them combined. Okay. So we're saying as this belief spread out and times change, then those two elements of femininity in in deity worship just split off and then became I guess I guess that's the ne next straight line in the area, right? Where Sumer would be. There's no like major belief system in between i mean the mycenaean greeks did have their own they had their own religion that was separate from what we think of as the ancient greek religion it was sort of a proto religion to that where there were kind of ishtar does come into that place a little bit mm -hmm. as war and um love and then aphrodite sort of splits from there we have like a proto hermes there's a whole we can do a whole episode on that it's it's a lot but what you'll see as we go through stories of Inanna is actually she had a pretty large impact on stories you see in the Old Testament. Ooh. Mm -hmm. I love how keyed into history you are. 
I mean, I did just research the whole episode. That's the only reason I know a lot of this. I'm just going to hype you up. Thank you. I love it. Thank you. You're so, oh, I'm so keyed into history. I'm going to take the compliment and run with it. All right. Assyrian royal curse formulas invoked both of Inanna's primary functions. We're getting into curses, baby. We're getting into curses. <laughs> well, sorry, what you didn't see was me just do a double take. <laughs> she did. <laughs> okay. So these curses invoked both of her primary functions at once, which asked her basically to remove potency and marital valor alike. Mesopotamian texts indicate that traits perceived as heroic such as a king's ability to lead his troops and to triumph over enemies, and sexual prowess were regarded as interconnected. So if you were good in bed, you were good on the battlefield. You know what they say about a man who's uh, good on the battlefield? He's probably going to die at war. I'm trying to think of... <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm trying to think of something funny to say in response, and my brain was like, white noise. Like, all that was playing behind my eyes was just the girl from Ipanema. That's hilarious. I can't take credit for that. That's Casey's go-to no-thought, head-empty joke. <laughs> All I got was Achilles and Patroclus, so I guess it would be, you know what they say about a guy who's good on the battlefield. He's definitely having sex with a man and is not coming home from war. <laughs> like, <laughs> Also true. So all of it, true. Yes, and? <laughs> yeah, yes, and. Okay. While Inanna was described as a goddess... Her gender could be ambiguous at times. Historian Gary Beckman states that ambiguous gender identification was a characteristic not just of Inanna herself, but of a category of deities he refers to as Inanna or Ishtar-type goddesses. We're going to get into this even more later, but there is a lot of fluidity in gender when it comes to Inanna and her worshippers, which I love. Mm. Before we get to that, though, we're going to talk about symbols of Inanna. So that, Rowan, the next time you go to a museum and there are ancient Sumerian or Mesopotamian artifacts, you can point out a bunch of symbols of Inanna and impress all your friends. Long and tan and young and lovely. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Perfect no thought head empty song. It's just like, that's gonna be me. I'm gonna be in the museum walking by Sumerian <laughs> artifacts and not one single symbol is gonna be. You'll remember some head. of these. You'll I, I think I think you'll remember some of these. The first symbol is an eight-pointed star. Usually it's next to or inside of a circular disc, which is referencing her brother named Utu or Shemash in Akkadian. She was often associated with the star Venus, so it's believed the eight-pointed star was a reference to her status as a heavenly goddess. This next one, no, you're going to have no thoughts at empty. It's the cuneiform ideogram that represents Inanna. It's a hook-shaped twisted knot of reeds, which represents the doorpost of the storehouse, which is a symbol of fertility and plenty. This one you will know, it's a rosette. This symbol actually overtook the eight-pointed star when Inanna merged with Ishtar and became her primary symbol. So if you see a really old Mesopotamian statue with a rosette, you can go, hey, it's Inanna and Ishtar and look really cool. Guaranteed, because you said I wouldn't remember or care about the cuneiform, I'm going to be all about the cuneiform <laughs> and delete the rosette. Uh, that's also fine by me. I think it's pretty cool to be able to identify cuneiform ideograms. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> 
Doves were also one of two prominent animal symbols associated with Inanna or Ishtar. They are shown on cultic objects associated with her as early as the beginning of the 3rd millennium BCE. And it's believed that Inanna or Ishtar could take the form of a dove. Lastly, lions were a major symbol of Inanna and seen as her companions. A lion even decorated the city to the gates of Babylon in honor of her. And you can see that uh, mosaic in museums today. The, the dove thing always gets me. Were they a, are they a more common bird than I think they are? I yeah yeah they're really common. I mean oh, because okay. I mean the white doves are more rare, but there's mourning doves. Pigeons well, yeah. are technically doves. Mourning doves and pigeons, but no one ever goes ah yes pigeons Inanna Jesus Christ all those other religious figures. They only save it for like the doves. It's true. I was thinking you were going to get really excited about lions because I got really excited about lions because I was thinking Cersei and... I like to keep you on your toes by not making the connections that you need me to make. <laughs> I just got... When I was researching it, I, every cool woman in mythology gets a lion. It's true. It's true. Women are associated with cats a lot throughout mm -hmm. everywhere all the time. And yes, Cersei and her lions. I I don't know. What is there to say? It's like when you – you, I feel like when you're trying to declaw a woman, she's a house cat. Like you get a mm -hmm. pampered cat and then when you're giving a woman some war powers, it's like, okay, now you can be part of the big cat category. That's so true. Also Ooh, – Look at you making connections left and right. I don't know if that's a real connection we should like be hanging our hats on, my darling. Um, but <laughs> – I mean, lions, like, let's face it, boy lions, they're not doing anything. It's all girl lions no, all the time. they do all the work. So I think everyone just has to acknowledge <laughs> <laughs> the lady it's lions. It's true. They're, okay. I can't even go down that rabbit hole. Let's talk about some Inanna myths. Sure. Her role changed throughout history. She had a continual drive for power. So I categorize some of these myths in a way that I think kind of shows her life and her ascent and her descent, hmm. which we will get to. The poem Enki and the World Order begins by describing the god Enki and his establishment of the cosmic organization of the universe. This is where we first see Inanna as a goddess. Towards the end of the poem, Inanna comes to Enki and complains that he has assigned a domain and special powers to all of the other gods except for her. She declares <laughs> that she has been treated unfairly, and Enki responds by telling her that she already has a domain and he does not need to assign her one. That's really all I got out of that tablet. But Inanna is also famously portrayed in the Epic of Gilgamesh in the myth of Inanna and the Hulubu tree, the myth of Inanna and the Hulubu tree, which we covered in the episode on Lilith. Yes, it was Fear of Women, and it was episode nine. Yes. So I'll continue on by saying there's one more origin myth, the hymn Inanna and Utu, and this contains the story of how Inanna became the goddess of sex. At the beginning of the hymn, Inanna knows nothing of sex, so she begs her brother Utu to take her to Kerr, which is basically the Sumerian underworld, so that she may taste the fruit of a tree that grows there which will reveal to her all the secrets of sex. Utu complies, and in Kerr, Inanna tastes the fruit and becomes knowledgeable. 
This has drawn many parallels to the story of Adam and Eve by scholars over the centuries. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I'm just imagining a modern retelling. This, like, virginal woman is like, I want to learn about sex. And so her brother takes her to, like, a burlesque show, and then she has, like, a cocktail and I'm loving this. learns all about it. I'm loving this. This is amazing. <laughs> this, would be, this would be so good for a story for this episode, and that is not what I wrote, and now I'm sad. No, don't be sad. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> I wonder what it is. Do we uh, – maybe maybe they just don't – we just don't find them as often because we're not looking for it and it's like confirmation bias. But I feel like there just aren't as many myths. And I don't mean stories. I mean like myth, capital M, about a god discovering sex. But it feels like there are a lot of myths, capital M, about a – a woman discovering sex and i i don't yeah. know like i say that because it feels that way to me but i think maybe if i went looking for it i wouldn't feel that way as much we just because we cover so many stories that center women it just mm -hmm. we see that over and over again i'm gonna have to look into that yeah me too now i'm really interested in it but next we're gonna talk about inanna stealing knowledge Inanna and Enki is a poem that tells the story of how Inanna stole the sacred Mez from Enki, the god of water and human culture. The Mez were sacred powers or properties belonging to the gods that allowed human civilizations to exist. Each Meh embodied one specific aspect of human culture. These aspects were incredibly diverse and covered everything from truth and victory to writing and weaving to law and kingship. They're the foundations of society. They were believed to grant power over all the aspects of civilization, both positive and negative. So these are very important and powerful items we're talking about here. In the myth, Inanna travels from her own city of Uruk to Enki's city of Eridu. This is where she visits his temple and is greeted by Enki's Sukal, or basically a human official, named Isimud. Isimud offers her food and drink, so obviously she starts up a drinking contest with Enki, like a boss. <laughs> <laughs> Once Enki is thoroughly intoxicated, Inanna persuades him to give her the mez. She flees from Eridu in the boat of heaven, taking the mez back with her to Uruk. Enki wakes up to discover that the mez are gone, and he asks Isimud what happened. Isimud replies that Enki gave away all the meds to Inanna while he was drunk. <laughs> Enki becomes infuriated and sends multiple sets of fierce monsters after Inanna to take back the meds before she reaches her city of Uruk. Inanna's super badass Sukal, remember, human official, named Ninshibur, fends off all the monsters that Enki sends after them. Through Ninshiver's aid, Inanna successfully manages to take the Mez back with her to the city of Uruk. After she escapes, Enki reconciles with her and bids her a positive farewell. It's possible that this legend may represent a historic transfer of power from the city of Eridu to the city of Uruk. The book Inanna, Queen of Heaven and Earth, Her Stories and Hymns from Sumer, writes that it is also possible that this legend may be a symbolic representation of Inanna's maturity and readiness to become the Queen of Heaven. I love that story. I think it's so cool that 
Inanna and Ninshaber get to both be really cool and powerful and smart and cunning in that story. Yeah, it's it's really cool that the human characters are so influential. We, you know, in mythology, people still center themselves and that's it's for the best in this story, but do these characters do the um Sukal ever appear again, those same figures in other myths? Like does she travel? Oh, yeah, with- you'll see Ninshaber again. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. And do we know the gender of Ninshaber? A woman. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. From everything that I've seen, Ninshaber is a woman. Is the Sukal always the rough gender match to the god that they serve? I don't know. I think the thing is with ancient Sumerian writing, what people have found to be a little challenging is it's not gendered. So mm. it can be hard to tell the gender identity of anyone being referenced. Maybe for the best. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about justice, Rowan. Uh-oh. There are two <laughs> – yeah. There are two famous myths of Inanna seeking revenge or justice. The first is a story of her vanity, and the second is a story of a goddess truly wronged. Let's start with the first one. Written by our good friend and Heduana, the famous poet. This story is called Goddess of the Fearsome Divine Powers – This describes Inanna's confrontation with Mount Ebe. The poem begins with an introductory hymn praising Inanna, as usual for these hymns. In the story, the goddess journeys all over the entire world until she comes across Mount Ebe. And she becomes infuriated by its glorious might and natural beauty, considering its very existence as an outright affront to her own authority. She rails at Mount Ebe and screams at it for its beauty and arrogance. Inanna petitions An, the Sumerian god of the heavens, to allow her to destroy Mount Ebe. Though An warns Inanna not to attack the mountain, she ignores his warning and proceeds to attack and destroy Mount Ebe regardless. In the conclusion of the myth, she explains to Mount Ebe why she attacked it. And honestly, she somehow comes out of the story as the victor. There's no comeuppance. Is the mountain still there in the story, or does she level a mountain? I think she levels a mountain. Again, these are all old tablets that are a lot of times broken up and chunks are missing. But from what I could see on this story, no, she just destroys a mountain because it was prettier than her. Are we then lumping her in with the exceptional woman? Is she, like, the woman who has to be the best woman in every room? The only woman in every room? Maybe. I recognize she railed against a mountain, not Mm -hmm. a specifically Mm -hmm. (laughs) woman figure, but still. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure about the exceptional woman thing the same way we've talked about Athena. But at the same time, she does have that vanity of Aphrodite that we've mentioned. Mm. Okay. Okay. Let's level mountains. Let's do it. All right. This next myth tells of a confrontation between the goddess and a young man, Shukeltuda. The story begins by extolling Inanna's righteous authority again as usual. As she stands in her temple, and it talks about how she set out one day on a quest for justice. It then introduces Shukeltuda a gardener who is terrible at his job. (laughs) All of his plants die, or he's just ripped them out of the ground, except for one poplar tree. 
Shukeltuda prays to the gods for guidance in his work, and to his surprise, he sees the goddess Inanna fly down and rest under the poplar tree in the shade of its branches. The myth states that she had for her loincloth a weaving of the seven cosmic powers across her thighs. Shukeltuda was working and saw her, and he approached, untied the loincloth of divine powers from across her lap, and he had intercourse with her as she slept, kissed her, and returned to his place at the edge of the garden plot. When she woke, she realized what had been done and was furious. First, she fills all the water wells of all the land with her own blood, so that blood is irrigating the orchard crops, and they are producing blood. Inanna declared that she would search all through the lands for the man who had done this. Shukeltuda, terrified for his life, pleads with his father for advice on how to escape Inanna's wrath. His father tells him to hide in the city amongst the hordes of people, where he will hopefully blend in. Inanna searches the mountains of the east for her attacker, but is not able to find him. She then releases a series of storms and closes all the roads in and out of the city, but is still unable to find Shukeltuda. So she asks Enki to help her find him, threatening to leave her temple in Uruk if he does not. Enki consents, and Inanna flies across the sky like a rainbow. Finally, she locates Shukeltuda, who vainly attempts to invent excuses for his crime against her. Inanna rejects these excuses and kills him. But his name, she says, would be remembered. His name would exist in song and make the songs sweet. This is a whole wild story. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot. So, theology professor Jeffrey Cooley has cited the story of Shukeltuda as a Sumerian astral myth, arguing that the movements of Inanna in this story correspond with the movements of the planet Venus, while Judy Graham of the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology asks some of the same questions that I did, namely, what is this about her blood? Why are there cosmic powers in a loincloth across her thighs? And why doesn't the myth tell us about his motivation? Right. Does he not need a motivation? Is the act motivation in itself? Kind of. Yeah, we're going to get into at least... Is he the Brock Turner of Sumer? Kind of. So actually, that's not the worst connection I've seen made. So... Graham goes on to answer these questions, stating that, as learned from his confession to the goddess prior to approaching her, the young gardener was really no gardener. He had already transgressed the land. He was to make a well for the garden plot, but as he complains, there were no plants to water because he had pulled them all up. And then, at that sacred site, before he committed his sexual transgression on the body of the goddess, he first disrespected the seven powers of her girdle, pulling them aside. Finally, he sneaks upon her as she sleeps and obviously leaves her will out of the act, which is for himself alone. By knitting the imagery together, the poet ties together the two transgressions, sexual and ecological. A man who would carelessly transgress the land would carelessly transgress the person of the woman as well. As for Inanna, This is a deity for whom menstruation, sexuality, and other functions of her vulva are at the heart of her sacrality. 
This surely explains why the laws of the cosmos are woven into a holy loincloth that binds her loins. The author goes on to explain that what was done to Inanna was also done to her people and everything she represented. There was no shame in her reaction to what happened, only righteous fury. Hmm. That's interesting. Righteous fury because she had the support of a community. Right. And she was the goddess of sexuality. It wasn't that she was ashamed of what had been done. She was just mad that it had happened. Hmm. That's a, that's a good myth. It's a good story uh, yeah. for describing mm, describing uh, what Shukeltuda did in the correct view, like looking at him as he was, which is a criminal. And mm-hmm. also, like he's the perfect example of that guy who's given a job he doesn't deserve and doesn't do any of the work and messes it all up and just thinks he's owed something. That mm-hmm. guy has existed forever. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, yeah, he has. It, it's, no, it's never his fault. It's always there's a reason. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) I also find it really interesting that her approach is to turn everything into her own blood. Because, again, there's a whole divine womanhood in that. Blood in mythology, I feel like, is always a signal to me that I'm going to be intrigued by the story. I feel like it's... It's just as such a visceral signifier. We, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of blood in the Old Testament, which it makes sense because you pointed to, you know, these stories leading to Adam and Eve. Like it's a very clear line, right. especially with female coded deities. You know, blood is a part of menstruation once a month, which mm-hmm. affects in an entire. It could affect an entire community. It couldn't affect just an individual, depending on how your society treats it. Either mm-hmm. way, it's a really big deal, especially in a time when making babies is much more um, affected by death and disease. You know the survival right. rate of children. So it it it's just a, a. I think sometimes our modern stories are removed from elements like blood because we remove ourselves from the physical like the visceral elements of our lives blood just becomes like fuel for murder stories like we quentin tarantino blood yes yes we did yeah what is she even saying do we even know rowan what are you talking about no we've we've turned it into a thing we we choose to interact with and thank god for you trace yes <laughs> it is because we've we've really we've made our lives so much cleaner so much more sterile that it's now this big choice to interact with blood in we make it this thing that you know as people with uteruses we experience blood very often but that's not a thing we're supposed to talk about right shower with. fresh scent tampons baby like everything right. is just <laughs> It's clean. You don't talk about it. You hide it away. And yeah. here it's like her fury is manifested in her own blood penetrating the entire world. I like that. I think mm-hmm. it's a much more, yeah, wholesome way to live. It's a more wholesome way to live. You get a more full picture of people, mm-hmm. especially for people who don't have uteruses. Like, welcome to the club. Nothing is shower fresh scent. Get out of here. <laughs> yes. Okay. So moving on to marriage, descent, and rebirth. 
Oh, no. These two tales I'm going to tell you are two of the most famous and two of the oldest in Nana tales. We're going to be focusing on the Sumerian versions of them, though there are Akkadian versions in, involving Ishtar that are slightly different. Inanna's marriage is described in the poem, Inanna prefers the farmer, <laughs> which I know, it's such a cute title. It begins with a rather playful conversation between Inanna and her brother Utu, who incrementally reveals to her that it's time for her to marry. She's courted by a farmer named Enkimdu and a shepherd named Demuzid. At first, Inanna prefers the farmer, but Utu and Dumuzid gradually persuade her that Dumuzid is the better choice for a husband, arguing that for every gift the farmer can give her, the shepherd can give her something even better. In the end, Inanna marries Dumuzid. The shepherd and the farmer reconcile their differences, offering each other gifts. Later on, the story is compared to Cain and Abel, as it is a story about a farmer and a shepherd in which the shepherd comes out ahead. Oh. Mm-hmm. Another parallel to Inanna and the Old Testament. Am I just not very aware of shepherding versus farming economically? I feel like farming would be a more stable... I think if I'm remembering one of the many things I read about this, the argument was, oh, there's a period of the year where the farmer can't give you anything, but the shepherd can produce year-round and a whole blah, 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 blah. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. And she she honestly, again, if I'm remembering correctly, I think she sleeps with both of them and is like, yeah, that one. But don't take my word on that. I don't have that verified anywhere. You got to test drive the shepherd before you buy it. <laughs> That's her whole bag. That's her whole <laughs> thing. <laughs> I really like that she's like, if you ever betray me, I'm going to kill you because I'm a goddess, but I can also do what I want. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so get ready for this. Well, Demuzid will make another appearance. Sometime after her marriage, Inanna decides that she wants to go to Kerr, which is, again, kind of the underworld in Sumerian mythology. This is to visit her sister and attend the funeral rites of her sister's husband, Gugalana. Kerr is described as a dark, dreary cavern located deep underground, Life there is envisioned as a shadowy version of life on Earth. It was ruled by Inanna's sister, the goddess Ereshkigal. Before leaving to go to Kerr, Inanna instructs her official, Ninshaber, she's back, <laughs> to plead with the deities Enlil, Nana, An, and Enki to rescue her if she does not return after three days. This is because the laws of the underworld dictate that with the exception of appointed messengers, those who enter it may never leave. Ooh, we're getting mm -hmm. some Persephone vibes in here. Yes, we are. <laughs> yeah, we are. Inanna dresses elaborately for the visit, with each garment she wears representing a powerful meh that she possesses. When Inanna gets to Kerr, she pounds on the gates of the underworld, demanding to be let in. The gatekeeper, Neti, reports this to Ereshkigal, who tells him, Bolt the seven gates of the underworld. Then, one by one, open each gate a crack. Let Inanna enter. As she enters, remove her royal garments. Following Ereshkigal's instructions, Neti tells Inanna that she may enter the first gate of the underworld, but she must hand over her lapis lazuli measuring rod. 
She asks why and is told, it is just the way of the underworld. She obliges and passes through. And Nana passes through a total of seven gates, at each one removing a piece of clothing or jewelry that she had been wearing at the start of the journey, thus stripping her of her power. When she arrives in front of her sister, she is naked. Eventually, three days and three nights pass, and Ninshaber, following instructions, goes to the temple of the gods and pleads with each of them to rescue Inanna. The first three deities refuse, saying Inanna's fate is her own fault. But Enki, who was deeply troubled, agrees to help. He creates two sexless figures, named Galatura and the Kurjara, from the dirt under the fingernails of two of his fingers. Ugh. It's got it's got golem energy. Yeah, it does. <laughs> I know. It's not ideal to be made from the dirt under someone's fingernails. Yeah. But it happened. <laughs> he instructs them to appease Ereshkigal, and when she asks them what they want, ask for the corpse of Inanna, which they must sprinkle with the food and water of life. They do as they are told and bring Inanna out of the underworld. However, demons sent by her sister insist that someone must be taken to the underworld as Inanna's replacement. First, they try to take Ninshaber, but Inanna stops them and refuses to allow her to be taken. They try to take two other followers of Inanna as well, but she refuses to allow them to be taken as they had properly mourned her. In contrast, when they come upon her husband, Dumuzid, he is lounging under a tree with women all around him. Inanna, displeased by this sight, tells the demons to take him in her place, which they do, dragging him all the way down to the underworld in her stead. Bye-bye. <laughs> That's when you were making faces when I was talking about him. I was like, oh, don't worry. It'll come back around. <laughs> so let me get this straight. She went to the underworld. And was resurrected after three days. Uh-huh. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> A connection I didn't even make at all. <laughs> yeah, full full body resurrection after three days. I, okay, we all know, or well, anybody who's been reading a lot of myths like us knows that there are more than a few figures who predated Jesus Christ, who did all the Jesus Christ things, like being mm -hmm. resurrected after three days. But the fact that it's a female mm -hmm. goddess, or I guess a, a woman-coded goddess in this case, is just so satisfying. It's delicious. It's so delicious. But can I circle back really quick? Because I think I'm missing something. Mm -hmm. She's going to her sister in the underworld for a funeral that her sister is holding, and her sister's like, get naked, and now you're stuck here. Yeah, basically, she, she kind of goes down. There's a few different versions. Her going down is a very arrogant ask. Like, it's a very arrogant thing to, to do. It's really to prove her own power, and it's probably, in all honesty, to get more power. Like, everything about her is getting more power. So her sister isn't necessarily unreasonable for being suspicious and starts to pull away all of her own power and then there are some versions of the story where uh, Inanna is judged and found wanting and then okay. is forced to stay I think those are a little bit later what is she judged by? the demons in the underworld do they 
do something with a feather maybe or <laughs> <laughs> no i don't i don't think so i think that's more of the acadian version so that's closer to the ishtar version than the inanna um but so she is stuck in the underworld for three days and there's a whole theory of oh she could predict her own fate and had ninshaber prepare for it and there's divine understanding and blah 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 i just like that she kicks her husband down into the underworld oh yeah bye bye buddy <laughs> The clothing thing is so fascinating to me. Like, the more clothing she removes, the less power she has, and yet she is a goddess of love, but not but not marriage love, like lovey love mm-hmm. love. Mm-hmm. And in so many cultures around the world, so many line up with that, but so many are opposite that. In the more clothing you put on a woman, the more of her power you take away. These items of clothing in particular represented the knowledge she brought to her city, so each one represented a piece of divine knowledge. I need everyone to know that I will be carrying a lapis lazuli measuring tape with me everywhere I go. Measuring stick, pardon me. Um, no, I like the idea of a big measuring tape. That feels right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I will be using it to determine the worthiness of, of people who are near me with my meh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is spelled M-E, by the way. I so like it could, that. It could be pronounced me, but it felt confusing for an audio format. Yeah, you committed. I did commit, as always, for right or for wrong. Oh, wait. Can I read the title of the next yeah. section? <laughs> yeah. Tracy titled the next section, Let's Get Queer About It. One of my favorite parts of researching Inanna was learning about how sexuality, gender, and self-identity were portrayed not only in her myths, but in the broader culture of the time as well. The rigidity that we see today around gender and sexuality was just not present in the myths of Inanna. Nice. For example, individuals who went against the traditional gender binary were heavily involved in the cult of Inanna. During Sumerian times, a set of priests known as Gala worked in Inanna's temples where they performed elegies and lamentations. They made up a significant number of the personnel of both temples and palaces, the central institutions of Mesopotamian city-states. These were thought in modern times to have been individuals with neither female nor male gender identities which connects to the myth I just told you where Enki creates two non-gendered creatures from the dirt under his fingernails. Mm. Men who became Gala sometimes adopted female names, and their songs were composed in the Sumerian Emesal dialect, which in literary text is completely reserved for the speech of female characters. So these men took on female names and only spoke in a female dialect. Sorry, there's – okay, so there's an entire dialect for – Because what they do – these are basically musicians. They okay. They sing and perf- – well, they're more than that, but they, they sing and perform these songs, which are actually – these lamentations, a lot of them are supposed to sound bad because they're supposed to sound like suffering. Okay. So when you hear things being sung sweetly, sometimes that's a good thing, but sometimes that's a bad thing because okay. sometimes you don't want your songs to be sung sweetly. I just thought that was really interesting. So – they would sing and recite these hymns in a female dialect, which apparently did exist. That's so cool. Isn't that so cool? During the Akkadian period, 
Kirguru and Asinu were servants of Ishtar who dressed in female clothing and performed war dances in Ishtar's temples. Several Akkadian proverbs seem to suggest that they may have also had homosexual proclivities as either a choice or part of their worship. Gwendolyn Lick, an anthropologist known for her writings on Mesopotamia, has compared these individuals to the contemporary Indian Hijira, which are described as eunuchs, intersex, asexual, or transgender people. The Hijira community in India prefer to call themselves Kinar or Kinair, referring to the mythological beings that excel at song and dance. In Pakistan, they are also called Kawaja Sira, the equivalent of transgender in the Urdu language. They have been officially recognized as a third gender in the Indian subcontinent, being considered neither completely male or female. They have a recorded history in the Indian subcontinent since antiquity, as suggested by the Kama Sutra. Which I didn't know about and thought was really cool to learn. Yeah, how do we not know about this? Because we're raised in a culture that is extremely westernized and self-grandiosing, so we not only learn about American culture, we rarely learn about anything more than England beyond that. Right. The older I get, the more that I feel a lot of American ways of communicating things is just incredibly binary. Like, yes. we don't leave a lot of room for gray area generally. No, not at all. Which is why I find this so interesting that it was like, yeah, you just, this is just another way of being that is completely valid and also respected. So, aside from being just musicians, the gala were pillars of the community. So in reference to Gala Priests, R.S. Benedict writes for Hornet in an article, okay, this article title is wild, but it will get you to click on it, called Sad Songs and Butt Sex, The Gala Priest of Ancient Sumer. I respect it. I know. <laughs> I had to include it because I was like, yeah, that worked. I clicked. <laughs> in the article, they write, in the Sumerian religion, sex was a religious rite. Holy sex workers were a typical feature of Anana's temples. Sumerian rulers could not ascend to the office of king without taking part in the sacred marriage ritual in which the prospective leader acted as the god Dumuzid and consummated his relationship with the goddess Inanna, represented during the ritual by a high priestess. So in Sumerian times, sex work was not only completely legal, in some cases it was actually respected. Yeah, because it's really hard work. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes and people don't need to be squeamish about all of this like you just don't need that yeah the squeamishness is just undue stress i just want to know if all of the folks who have been squeamish for generation upon generation ever just look at their lives and go wow we just added this big stressor for no reason <sighs> me at myself every day with my own anxiety okay well i wish you hadn't gone there um <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean, listen, I don't like people that much. And so when I have to interact with people fully clothed and not in their most vulnerable state, sometimes I'm like, ah, nope. Could you imagine the mental and emotional gymnastics you have to do to take care of yourself as a sex worker? Sex work is real work and we stand for that on this podcast 100%. Thank you. Sign sealed delivered. All right, so Inanna was also believed to have the ability to change a person's gender. 
This power of Inanna's, the ability to change a man into a woman and vice versa, is well accounted for in multiple poetry fragments and is indicative of the existence of people living outside the gender binary in ancient Mesopotamia. That is so cool! I know! Oh, I got so excited researching this. Oh my god, I hope that people in 2021 are rediscovering Inanna. Me too. I want to be I want to be that like spearhead of bringing her back into like we listen, we love Aphrodite, we love Athena. Put them to the side, bring Inanna forth. We got it. She needs to be here. I was scrolling through a couple articles because honestly, the sad songs and butt sex really <laughs> really was clickbait but it seems like a fair number of people are writing articles and pieces about how inanna is like the perfect goddess for a lot of folks today oh yes yes Uh, one of the uh, articles i was reading was a personal blog about this person who was kind of trying to figure out a way to get in touch with themselves to get through a lot of mental health issues and they were thinking about getting into goddess worship but wanted to do research on it and fell down the rabbit hole of researching Inanna and and learning all about her as a goddess. And that was how this article came to be. And I just want to make sure that I have this correct now that we're talking about gender. It is goddess Inanna and she, her pronouns usually? Yes. She is okay. a goddess. She, her pronouns, though it's completely fluid. And I think she's the kind of goddess who if we met her today, would be like, yeah, she, her, they, it, he... As long as I can have sex with you, I don't care. Please just refer to me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she is very much please perceive me. That was my character divinity. That was the energy divinity who was trying to bring to the table. <laughs> yes. Please just refer to me is exactly her pronouns. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. The words of Enheduanna, again, our lady poet we love attests to Inanna's ability to change people's genders. In her poem, Passionate Inanna, she writes, To destroy, to create, to tear out, to establish are yours, Inanna. To turn a man into a woman and a woman into a man are yours, Inanna. Imagine if our society dealt with the actual physical transformations that transgender people can or cannot employ to their liking imagine if we dealt with that in with that much like in that sacred way like this is a transformation yes with reverence that's exactly the word instead of just all of the hot garbage people try to just guilt imagine how wonderful would that be ah and nana (laughs) i know oh my god this was such a ah, it was such a joy to research Morg Daniels writes for Academus Education that individuals living outside of the gender binary were heavily involved and associated with the cult of Inanna, and her cult members and priests were known for their androgyny and blurring or destroying of the gender binary. The gender-blurring members of her cult have been included in poems and dedications written for her, often with Inanna personally transforming the gender of her devotees. The Gala were heavily involved in her temples, performing elegies and lamentations, presiding over religious rites, and healing and looking after the sick and poor. They were respected members of the community who took close care of all of the citizens around them. The possibility of the Gala undertaking ritual castration has been suggested frequently, 
but there is little evidence to support this, and regardless, it would not be a confirmation or validation of anyone's gender identity. We cannot make assumptions about the gender identity of all the Gala, of course. There were Gala who were cisgender women, and others who were married to men or women with children. This could be due to Gala priests being associated with multiple gods and only the Gala of Inanna were living possible trans lives, or... Perhaps the Gala were a group with a huge range of sexualities and gender identities, much like our own society today. End quote. I just... This is all so cool. I know. I know. I just... Uh, what I love, too, is that there were so many articles and papers that I read, because uh, one of the things that I quoted, um, uh, Graham's paper, was this long, amazing thesis on Inanna and the way that you can perceive Inanna from a psychology perspective, which I'll touch on again in a bit. And then this article, you see so many people who have different perspectives, i.e. LGBTQ plus perspectives, talking about these now that aren't the books from the 80s from the cis heterosexual perspective of Inanna. It's becoming much more broad to talk about her from all different walks of life. Oh my god, I can imagine exactly the way the textbooks from the 1980s would have talked about Inanna. Mm -hmm. Oh god. Ugh. And <laughs> first of all, a huge thank you to anyone who has ever written a thesis and made it free and available to all people online. Like, you are doing the work. Thank you yes. so much. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's stories like these that make me you know maladaptive daydream like putting mm -hmm. on the the robe outfit being in a cult turning all the wells to blood it's a great time it's <laughs> visceral everything is you know intense and then i remember like oh just mosquitoes just mosquitoes it's always mosquitoes for me <laughs> like everything is lovely and seems so great and people were accepting gender and then i'm like but there was no deet in bugs Bray. Mm-hmm. It's true. They probably did something gross, too, to prevent bugs, like use dung or something. So could we please just have progressive thinking? So if I bring back antibiotics, you'll bring back oh, bug spray? Oh, the off-deep woods, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Poison everyone. Um, no, if we could just have some... Nice progressive thinking, making its way through people's theses into our modern thinking. That would be great. I would love that. That would be incredible. And we can spearhead that effort by continuing to read every thesis we ever find related to anything we talk about on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we've gotten to that point. Rowan, are you ready for a story? Yes, I am. You walked into the museum, echoed by the sound of your shoes clack, clack, clacking across the marble floor of the entryway. The lobby was a large and grand room, opulent in the way that only museums and opera houses seem to be anymore. There were wide stone columns around the edges of the circular room that reached with outstretched hands towards the sunroof with bright sunlight streaming into the chamber through the wide floor-to-ceiling windows, the whole space felt light and airy, yet still imposing. You always appreciated that about this space. You walked towards the service desk, tucked away at the left side of the room, 
You didn't need anything, but there was a young man working there you hadn't seen before. He sat next to a woman you'd seen here many times before. Her sleek black hair was always tied back into a tight, neat bun at the back of her head, and her eyes were lined with thick, dark liner. The young man, however, was all fresh-faced and freckled, and he sat up straighter as you approached. They always did. There was something in your air, even now, that made everyone slightly uneasy around you. Sometimes it was the good kind of uneasy, like the flutterings in your stomach after a first date. Other times it was the sort of uneasiness that sat heavy in your gut and didn't leave you for hours. Based on the red flush already creeping up the man's face, you knew it was the first kind of uneasiness settling into his body. The woman, more used to your presence by now, simply grinned in amusement as you approached. You flashed them both your warmest smile and reached wordlessly for a map of the museum. You shamelessly looked the young man up and down, assessing his trim figure and neatly pressed jacket before giving him a wink. You heard him sputter in surprised delight as you turned on your heel and walked further into the museum. You didn't need the map. You hadn't needed one in a very long time, so you tossed it carelessly into the recycling bin at the end of the hall. You wound your way back in time through stone hallways and neon signs, past heavy oil paintings and gold-leaf manuscripts, delicate glassware and carved statues, all the way until you reached a singular archway leading into a square, dimly-lit room labeled Mesopotamian Antiquities. You walked into the room slowly, reverently, as though the bits and baubles on display were the gods themselves sitting in the room. But you knew them for what they really were. Memories. Each item had been carefully excavated, catalogued, and displayed here in the museum. Delicate bulbs allowed you enough light to see by, but not so much as to damage the pieces. To most museum-goers, these items represented the past, but to you they were so much more. You lived among these items once. Each precious piece that existed here had once been no more than an everyday object to you. The squat, painted ceremonial jar was not some sacred item as described on the label, but merely the jug in which citizens had kept their water. Beautiful, yes, but sacred? Hardly. The heavily beaded necklace that had once been laid out and offering to you sat in a glass cage. The true story behind that necklace was one the museum curators did not know, but would love to hear. It was the story of a young woman who stole the necklace from your altar to impress another, who quaked with fear when you appeared before her in your magnificent glory, and who wrote hymns about you when you spared her life. That was the real story behind the necklace. You could tell the whole world the real story, but you found it much more fun to keep silent. Besides, those memories were a warm blanket on a cold day, a comforting reminder of what had once been. You didn't mind that things were different now. In fact, you welcomed it. 
Your children and your children's children ruled the skies, the seas, the earth, and all that existed beyond, and you were grateful for it. A star can only shine so brightly before it burns out, and you were proud of your gentle fading, of your soft descent from the heavens into a more comfortable life. Let the children hunt for their glory. You'd ruled for thousands of years, and still thousands of years after that they were saying your name. Let the others try to achieve half of what you accomplished in your time. A smile crossed your lips as you passed in front of a statue titled Inanna in Stone. You were depicted there with large breasts on display and hips nearly as wide as your shoulders that curved into finely shaped legs. But it was the statue next to this one, one that was neither man nor woman, yet somehow both at the same time. This was the statue that always caught your attention the most. It was titled Inanna in Marble and it was your favorite piece in the museum. Your hand traced across the glass in a gentle lover's caress. It wasn't lost on you, even after all these years, how strange it was to see these items reverently on display. To know that what had once been mundane was now so carefully protected. To see the life you once led decorate the rooms of a museum. That was the gift of eternity, to see today become history and to watch the cycle trip over itself time and time again. As you left the museum, you gave the freckled young man and the dark-haired woman at the desk your phone number. You knew that without a doubt there would be messages waiting for you before you even made it home. Ooh, Trace, I wonder if you went to a museum recently. <laughs> I, yeah, uh, Rowan, Rowan vaguely knew the general idea that I wanted to tell a story from the point of view of, of a museum, of someone seeing their life on display, which was inspired by a museum I went to in Sweden, which had a mini exhibit of everyday items to us on display, like a toothbrush and an iPhone. And it was all this carefully curated versions of things that to us which is stuff you see around the house like to see it picked up from outside your house and put into a museum was so crazy and weird to me because there's no context right that I wanted to write something about someone going and seeing that and knowing the real story behind it like the idea of seeing your hairbrush and being like it is so weird to see it on a pedestal when it lives in my messy bathroom sacred plastic tooth scrubber yes used in nightly <laughs> cleaning ritual <laughs> you did two things that really interest me in this story. One, you put the listener in the place of the goddess. Mm -hmm. It was a very powerful choice. Thank you. I also very intentionally did not gender at all. Ooh, ooh, yeah, you there, did. I didn't gender the person experiencing that story. Well done. Also, you... Did something in the, you know, her lifespan as a goddess, you know, she once mm -hmm. was young and saw glory and now she's really enjoying kind of being comfortable and relaxing. And it just made me think like, you know, we've had in the scope of human mythology, all of these gods who were at the height of their power being worshipped and then still exist in the annals of history. And when we explore everlasting beings in writing or 
or characters that have incredibly long lifespans. You know, there's this beginning period where they perceive time in the same way humans do because they haven't Mm -hmm. lived that long. And then the longer they live, the more a thousand years starts to look like a minute. Mm -hmm. And so it makes sense that a god in their early conception in their first years would be doing great things and performing great miracles and being a very present god because they experience time in the way humans do. And Mm -hmm. then the longer they go on, the less active they are. Right. And that's a a really interesting way of sort of homogenizing human mythology in one giant concept that works. Thank you. Yeah. I like what you did. I wanted – that was absolutely a way that I thought of it, the idea of it explains mythology. And I also just wanted to put it in there that aging isn't bad. What? Say it again. That you're still valuable. (laughs) So I wanted to make it really clear that the character in the story does not mind. They're not going to the museum because it's this heartbreaking, nostalgic moment of the person they used to be and no longer. It's just, wow, look at how weird it is to see my old life on display. I'm glad I'm the person I am now. I like that. Thank you. It was very fun. I wrote it before I finished even researching. I got really excited. Oh, that's to, cool. To do it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so am I seeing some pictures coming up? You are. So we're going to talk about a few different items because then I got inspired by museums, of course. So these are a couple of items that are um, relevant to Inanna that are on display or have been made. So the first one is called the Mask of Warka, and it's the first almost complete and life-size depiction of the human face in history. I'll say almost because it is missing its nose in a very sphinx-like way. It's made of marble, and it's about 20 centimeters tall. The eyes, which are now empty, may have been inlaid with shells and lapis lazuli. The head may have been part of a large cult statue, or it was attached to a wall. It likely represents the Sumerian goddess Inanna, and it was excavated by a German archaeological team in 1939. It was in a temple dedicated to Inanna in the city of Uruk, which is modern-day Warka, in southern Iraq, and has been in the Iraq Museum since, with a brief period of it being lost in the mid-2000s during the Iraq mm. War, refound, put back in the museum. Now it is on display there. Wow. Yes, it has had a journey. That's very recent, almost losing of art. Yes. So would you like to describe the Mask of Warka? Yeah, so I had to look up how many inches 20 centimeters is because I just couldn't make my brain imagine Mm -hmm. how big this was. It's just under eight inches big, uh, this mask head. So it's actually not that large, but I say that as someone who has never tried to sculpt anything out of marble. Right. Um, (laughs) And yeah, the hollow eyes are really striking. She's got a, Tracy, you'll know how to name this hairstyle, like the pin waves. Of finger the 19- waves. Finger waves. She has finger waves with a really severe part down the middle of her hair. And it's just really slicked back, tight hair, empty eyes, exactly broken sphinx nose, and just a really like subtly curving mouth. Deeply carved unibrow, which I find very interesting. Yeah, the unibrow thing. I ro- Yeah, sure. Rock on. Like, mm-hmm. like, I wonder if that was a style that we just lost. It's true. You know, maybe that was really popular. It makes you wonder if that was the style or if that was just the style of the art. Either way. Mm-hmm. I wonder, yeah. 
It's it's just a really simple depiction of a face. Yes. So if we scroll down further, we're going to jump forward a few thousand years oh, to yeah. 1916. This is an illustration depicting Inanna's descent into the underworld, which was taken from Lewis Spence's Myths and Legends of Babylonia and Assyria. This was illustrated in, like I said, 1916. So this has... If you're familiar with 1920s style, mm-hmm. which a lot of people are, you're going to imagine instantly like Great Gatsby Art Deco. This has the beginning hints of what that will become. It's like proto-Alphonse Mucha. Exactly. Yes. Yes. It's this woman standing. She is very light-skinned. Yes. <laughs> yes, she is. Um. That ain't it. But uh, anyway, she's standing in this flowy sheer dress. She has beads in very strategic places around her boobs and her crotch. And she's got a crown of gold and and gemstones. And she's just all diaphanous fabric with this rainbow in the background and all sorts of birds doing their little bird thing around her. (laughs) She looks like... A lot of depictions of Aphrodite, mm-hmm. like just a curvaceous, beautiful, soft lady frolicking in green fields. Yes. Who's white? Yes. Also that. <sighs> Bummer. The last one is a statue from 2450 BCE of two Gala priests found in a temple of Inanna at Mari. Oh, this is so cool. Right? I thought you'd like this one. Wow, um, it the the shape of these figures pressed together, it almost looks like two bookends, mm-hmm. like they the way that they mirror each other, and they're kind of where they come together, they're flat, but there are these big, broad-shouldered figures who are clasping something in their hands, and they have these. It looks like a robe on that might. It looks like it's made of feathers. Or, it does look like it's made of feathers. They're very cool, but they have these. You know, very prominent ears and very – the noses stick far out in the carving, so they've also been broken off. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> the eyes are very apparent. But then they have these haircuts that look like they're all shaved completely except for the top. Mm-hmm. So, like, if a mili- uh, U.S. military haircut were exaggerated. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. This, These are just – I'm so glad you pulled this because I would not have known what to imagine the Gala priests looking like. Remember, these are gendered as female. Oh, specifically this carving? No, just Gala priests in general were using female names, female Right, 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 right. So these are very, if you had to put a gender to it, masculine looking carvings that the Gala priests were typically gendered as female. Okay, yeah. That makes that haircut even more interesting, I think. Right? It does. Especially because we have the 1916 depiction of Inanna and she's just all like soft stereotypical feminine. Western beauty mm-hmm. standards for what a woman is. You could truly swap that out with an Alphonse Mucha painting, which I love Alphonse Mucha, but to be able to swap out Inanna sumerian goddess with right (laughs) it's not great that said if anyone is an artist and wants to draw modern inanna wandering through a museum 
seen depictions of her. I would love a modern Inanna. I would love that so much. Like, just imagine what our gal would grab from the fashion of today. Ooh, so many options. It's so easy to bleach and color your hair now. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. anyway, I imagine she'd have some some shaved something like a shaved undercut, a shaved eyebrow. Some like oh. it would not be all strictly beautiful feminine the way we see it today because she was war and love and justice and violence and all these things. Okay, so then going off of the sculpture from above, let's go like intense eyebrows, straight, just bushy, rocking that unibrow like full out, and then shaved hair. Like, ooh, totally just, shaved. Yes, just, ooh. you know, when it's really tight, so you could kind of dye designs on it almost because it's just oh so my God. short. She's already <laughs> cool. Like, I'm already like, get, I'm like, oh, she's so cool. <laughs> All right, artists, please draw something, please. I'll leave us here today with a quote from Judy Graham of the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology in a paper titled Ecology of the Erotic Myth of Inanna. We have benefited as section after section of the lyrical poetry and myths of the Sumerian goddess Inanna have been excavated, translated, and published. Such psychologically relevant treasures as Inanna meets the god of wisdom and the descent of Inanna into the underworld, enable both women and men to delve deeply into their own psyches, and for example, to understand some forms of depression as possibly creative journeys that not only achieve resolution, but are also beneficial. Earlier in the 20th century, the surfacing of the Gilgamesh myth with its flood story and Inanna's courtship tale of choosing the shepherd's gifts over the farmers brought attention to the antiquity of stories that later became retained in biblical texts long after the great Sumerian civilization had faded. Our farmer boy, he really made it out because she married the shepherd and the shepherd slept around and then she killed him. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure <laughs> she went back to the farmer and was like, hey, my boy. Wanna- my boy, what's up, baby? <laughs> <laughs> that whole paper was really interesting because it explores the myths of Inanna from a psychology perspective and how we can use those stories to examine our own ways through mental health and our own ways to examine mental health. I am so interested in the way people's beliefs can be beneficial for mental health because I, perhaps on my own, I did this, but foolishly thought like, oh, belief in systems have to be separate from the science that is mental health. Like, what the heck, girl? <laughs> it's a journey many of us go through. I agree. It's it's a, it feels like they have to be separate, but I think it's really interesting when people come in and bring beliefs into science. I always find that really cool to hear people talk about. And you know, you and I read dozens and dozens and dozens of myths and stories, and anytime I see characters go through mental health struggles or just struggles in general, even if they're not similar to my own, you have that moment of kinship like the the feeling of not being alone and my biggest struggle personally is when something that i think should be trivial bothers me deeply Mm, when i mm -hmm. see characters from history and figures from mythology dealing with that same issue something that might have been trivial but they struggle with i'm like oh it's not trivial it's timeless 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> it's true. It makes you feel if you can if you can connect to someone as ancient as Inanna or the people in those stories, it really shows that people have always been people. And a lot of the emotions we feel are still the same, even in completely different worlds. Yes. And in our current modern culture uh, uh, where curation kind of meets consumption, I think that there's this desire to, once you see something you like, just have it, just own mm -hmm. it as yours. And the more we read stories, the more I think we learn in a, in a practical way. Like, you can admire something and not own it. Yes. The opposite of everyone who has an NFT. Ah. <laughs> opposite thought process. <laughs> Oops. You did such a good job, Tracy. I'm glad you covered this because I I wasn't even aware of how much I would love her. She's amazing. She's amazing. I had no idea what I was getting into when I started this. But it was so worth it. And it, it was so interesting. And I'm so glad I was able to do her as a solo heavy hitter. This is all Inanna's story episode. I just love the idea of Inanna being like, I don't care what you call me, just perceive me. Just perceive <laughs> me. <laughs> okay, I've done a lot of talking, Rowan, so now it is your turn to tell me something good. Hmm. So I just got a big delivery yesterday of a bunch of twinkle lights for my outside little patio yard oh my space. God. You have so much space to decorate now. I know. And we ordered um, like LED lights that can color mm -hmm. change because oh, I am so the person who just wants the lights to be colored all the time. Yeah. Uh, so we're really starting to decorate and get down with it, and I'm really excited to have an outdoor space. It's really hard making decisions about what you want a space to look like and just finding all the parts and pieces. I want it to all be done, and I want it to go slowly at the same time. Um, mm -hmm. But lights, what is it about twinkle lights that just improves every situation? Oh, yeah. And I want to clarify, these are not uh, a holiday-themed lights. This is for your year-round outdoor enjoyment oh yeah so um in our townhouse there's a balcony and then there's also a patio so we are going to be stringing up lights on the balcony that i specifically picked so that they could be changed to red and green for a christmas vibe or mm -hmm. orange and purple for a halloween vibe like i mm -hmm. chose ones that could become hell or holiday but could become halloween like that's the only that's holiday. it oh just halloween <laughs> Um, but no, no, they're for all the time because I just want to be outside. And if there's going to be so much light pollution that I can't see stars, I'm going to have twinkle lights. Yeah. You'll make your own. I love that. That's so exciting. I want pictures. I know. I'm really excited. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Tell me something good, Trace. Okay. After we end our chat today, I have to go finish making a sweet potato casserole for a Friendsgiving we're doing tonight. Oh, can I have some? I would love to have you come over and have some. Actually, I would make this for you. I I have thought about this so much of how <laughs> I can make this um, friendly for you to eat. And it's not that hard. I mean, um, the recipe that I used has brown butter. But, like, you can use margarine. And um, – or you could do it without the butter entirely. There's a recipe. No, why would you do that? No, no, no. Fake butter is a really great thing. Well, there's a recipe that uses milk, and you could use oat milk if you needed. 
Um, I'm converting Tracy to my particular favorite oat milk. Already converted me. I'm so con- – I'm like so converted. I've actually not even mentioned it on the podcast because I don't want people buying it because I selfishly want it all for myself. <laughs> It is hard. It's the best one, so it's always sold out. Always sold out. I had to go to a very specific grocery store near me to get it. And I hear you. I hear you sitting there going, well, what's the oat milk? Tell us. Tell us. Tell us. We're not going to tell you um, because I would rather have them make us do an ad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this very, very fancy, well-known <laughs> company. Yes. <laughs> That's our strategy, and we're sticking with it. Are we gatekeeping oat milk right now? <laughs> Gaslight gatekeep girl boss oat girl milk? Girl boss oat milk. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, oat milk's great. Uh, everyone should drink oat milk. Um, we have a particular brand that we like that we will get to sponsor us. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, my gosh. I uh, made a sweet potato casserole that's going to have – it's got the sweet brown potato, sugar. brown sugar. Oh, yeah. It's all mashed together, and then on the top you do rows of marshmallow and then, like, a, a crumbly pecan topping. Oh, okay. Um, I'm really sorry to do this. So in my family, we do the sweet potatoes. We do, I've had the crumbly pecan topping. Like, I get you there. I have never had and therefore do not understand the marshmallow on the potato situation. So talk What's sweet me. potato? So it's, it's a sweet potato filled with sugar already. So you're going to have those Right, spices. so why do you need more sugar? Oh, because you get it, you broil it so that – I do it with actually cornflakes and pecans so you get extra Literal crunch. Literal cornflakes? Yeah, you mix them up with butter and um, butter and yeah. sugar and cinnamon and yeah. then the pecans and then you put it on top in diagonal rows with marshmallows and then you broil it so all of the pecan part gets all crusty and crunchy and then the marshmallow part gets all toasted. So you have toasted marshmallow and then the like warm gooey – Sweet potato. It's so good. Okay. I'll share my recipe. Maybe I'll get to try it this year. I'm going over to a friend's for a big friend's giving, and I'm not in charge of that. I mean, I, I am making a dairy-free, gluten-free French silk pie. Ooh. Oh, my God. That's going to be so good. I'm going to try to channel you because you really are the baker of the two of us, so I'm going to try to embrace my inner Tracy. I, I hope the best for you. I want uh, I want the recipe. I can help you tweak it or do things as needed. Although, to be fair, you've got Kaylee near you, who is also a very good baker. So. I will say this is like my one recipe that I make that is like really good. Like I've mm-hmm. actually – I've perfected it. Anyway, you know what? Okay, here's the thing. Going into next week, the many weeks to come, let's all just bring a little Inanna with us. Mm-hmm. Always. We are love. We are war. <laughs> you get what we give you and you're going to like it. Yes. <laughs> I think that's a perfect place to wrap this up. So thank you all so much for joining us. And remember, stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Mm, or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon. Okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch. Or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. 
We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. I just want a blooper reel of just us barking.